Welcome to The Permanent Record. I'm Josh Spickler, Executive Director of Just City. We're a nonprofit criminal justice reform organization based in Memphis, Tennessee, and The Permanent Record is our podcast. It's about the criminal justice system and how we can work together to make it work better for everyone. In early November, Just City co-hosted an event with the Community Foundation of Greater Memphis that featured two guests with deep experience observing and reforming police departments. We wanted to help our community better understand the pattern of practice investigation that's been launched into the Memphis Police Department. One of those guests was Iris Rowley, and while she was here, we asked her to join us on the permanent record. Over the last two plus decades, Iris has played a pivotal role in shaping Cincinnati's policing and public safety landscape. With the Cincinnati Black United Front, she spearheaded a groundbreaking initiative that led to the historic collaborative agreement filed in federal court. It was a first of its kind class action settlement because it involved community members in policing reforms. Under her leadership, this agreement became a national model for transforming police culture and accountability. She's currently the consultant to the city manager of Cincinnati on policing and public safety. Iris joined us in our conference room in downtown Memphis, along with her husband, some friends, family, and Just City staff. Thank you, Iris, for joining us today at the Just City office. We've got some folks in the room with us who are listening, excited to hear what you have to say. Uh, You came down from Cincinnati, where you've been very, very active uh, in the community for a long time. Uh, Tell us about that. Tell us um, how you got started in community activism, what you've done, and then we'll talk a little bit more about why you're here in Memphis. Sure. First, let me thank Just City of Memphis for the invitation and the warm welcome and just the openness of uh, conversations and the dialogue. It's These conversations are difficult to have and not many people are just open to differences of opinions and work and body and reflections of people who bring those differences. So I want to say thank you to all of you all. You've been so good for my soul. The work uh, in Cincinnati, like the work across the country, is extremely hard. It isn't easy because it often comes after severe tragedy, another tragedy, another life, another complicated situation of a child or uh, someone with mental health issues dealing with police. Um, And when you are black like me, you have seen it most of your life. And when you get to be older and black like me, you see the inequities, you see the trueness of why things are. And then you're, then you're actually clear about how difficult it is to fix the stuff that you need to fix. In Cincinnati, without the, death of 15 unarmed, the deaths of 15 unarmed black men in, up until 2001, and, the, and including the ones that have been murdered um, or beaten or arrested inappropriately, Um, I would say the work would be gratifying, but we have to lose life in order for people to sit down at the table. And for me, it's, it's so backwards. It, it sends me in a, in a, in a space that you really are not clear headed about. You're angry. You want to be hopeful. You want to be able to, um, think clearly. You don't want to be told that you have to, um, that you have to, um, forgive or forget what you're thinking about and how you're feeling, you want to be able to express that. I think black people are the only ones that we can't come with our emotions, with the realness of what is happening. So to be part of change, systematic change, um, has been gratifying. And I'm just standing on the shoulders of those who paved the way for us to get there. Yeah, well, let's, talk, let's talk about that. You're part of an organization called Black United Front, and you all got involved uh, 
as a result of unarmed black men getting killed in nope. part. No. no? T- tell me about how you got started. We organized because 14 downtown restaurants decided to close during the largest revenue generating event in our summer, in the summertime. This was the music festival, right? The music yeah. festival. That's why we organized, because just like we pay taxes, they we pay taxes and, and people who own small businesses and even large businesses and developers, you know how the world goes around, um, come to our city and they get our dollar for furniture, fixtures, and facade, and um, inside equipment and abatements and tips and all of these things that come from the taxpayers. So they decided to close during the, the Jazz city Festival. Did. City These decided. restaurants oh, I'm sorry. Okay. decided to close with the city's knowledge. They actually wrote a letter to the regional chamber, not the black chamber, but the regional chamber, and told them that they were going to close because black people didn't know how to tip. They didn't know how to order food. We steal silverware, salt and pepper shakers, all of these crazy things that you thought, what in the world? Where do I actually live? Is this where I live? I live in a town that thinks this way about me. And, oh, by the way, you're going to get my tax dollar to fix your stuff. So we decided to organize around that, and that was in the summer of 2000. November of 2000 is when we had the 2 and 24, Jeffrey Irons and Roger Owensby Jr., and that was the catalyst of why we switched from focusing on people who steal your tax dollar until you can't come in to trying to fix the system. The community asked us to do it. And ultimately, we're plaintiffs in a lawsuit. Yeah, we were plaintiffs in a federal lawsuit we filed. Um, we sued the city, the FOP, um, and the police for racial alleging racial profiling. We walked into federal court with 30 years of history of the black community and the police we could document. We had over 400 stories that I project managed and collect to show the landscape, because the state of Ohio is a two-year state, to, to tell your story. I, I want to talk, talk about that story, because you mentioned that a little bit to me. Um, last night, the the storytelling sites that you set up. Tell us about that process, because I want to learn more about that. It was interesting, Josh. Um, Even though we were suing the city and the police and and our police that we pay for, and the FOP, the the union that represents them, the city actually worked with us. So we set up five sites across the city. I looked at the city to see where were black people and how could they easily and safely tell their story. Now, we're talking about 2001. Internet wasn't that prevalent for black folks. We, you know, I still had a, a cell phone that said, call me after 9 because, you know, the rates were, you know, you had to get the package <laughs> right, and right. all that kind of stuff. Um, so we utilized some of uh, the rec centers um, that were in communities that were um, – where project-based housing was, affordable housing, if you understand what I'm talking about. We utilize those spaces, and then we use churches throughout the city. And so I crafted out this plan where we had five centers, spaces, safe spaces, where people could actually come and tell their stories. Our attorneys drafted our questions. We didn't lead anyone. We just listened um, and made it safe. We didn't allow the media to show their faces. At that time, black people were afraid of retaliation. And we just wanted to get clarity because we really didn't know what we were dealing with. We, I wasn't personally having any personal issues with the police, but we wanted to know exactly where black people stood. Now, my husband is here and he ran one of the sites for us at um, one of our churches in the community downtown. Um, and it was a humbling experience. You know why, Josh, and to the team of Just City, no one had ever asked black people how they felt about policing in their town. Nobody. And in effect, you asked yourselves. They still didn't, right? But you, 
filed this lawsuit and used, I, I presume you used these stories. We used those stories. 16 of those stories became part of the collaborative agreement of which we didn't talk about. We settled those 16 um, suits inside of our agreement and to the tune of $4.5 And at that time, that was a large settlement award because before the city wouldn't give you anything if they killed your loved one or if they brutalized you, you or you maybe got like $2,000. But typically what would happen is we would be told that things were justified and we were not going with that, with that line anymore. So. so you got the settlement but you, and you mentioned the collaborative agreement, which I do want to talk about. Um, at the same time or, or around the same time, um, the Department of Justice did an investigation similar to the one that's underway here in Memphis um, and that also contributed to this collaborative agreement. Explain what the collaborative agreement is and um, as much as you want to talk about how the, the it was CAA, 20 years ago. So. Yeah, well, the collaborative is the additional piece that you heard Richard Jerome talk about. Now, typically in these types of settlements or consent decrees, you just have what the DOJ constructs and it go through the uses of force, matrix, matrixes around training, uh, promotions, those types of things. Mm -hmm. All about want, the police department. Right? All about the police department. What we wanted to do, because we studied other consent decrees, I think we were the 12th in the country, and we wanted to be different. We wanted to put black people center of designing what uh, public safety looked like, ensuring that the goals, the original goals of the uh, collaborative agreement were met, making sure that we met all the timelines and procedures um, and benchmarks that were laid out. The unique thing about the Cincinnati Black United Front that has not been recreated across the country is that we participated in all of it. So we picked the monitor. We helped hire them. It was our voices that led along with the cities and the FOP. Everybody had to sit down and do the work. We hired the conciliator. We hired the monitoring team. Every part and parcel we were part of. And we still are to this day. It's a question that I got last night. Um, and for, for listeners um, of the podcast, we did an, an event at the Community Foundation last night. And um, Iris referenced uh, Richard Jerome, who was deputy monitor over the collaborative agreement in Cincinnati, uh, and he came to that event as well. Um, but one of the questions that I got was about um, how you got in those rooms and whether it was quote-unquote legal or quote-unquote allowed. And, um, and my take on this, and I'll get yours because you're the expert, is that of it's you're reaching an agreement and so whatever everyone agrees to and wants to contribute to the process of getting that agreement is okay and so yes we want black voices in the room yes we want business voices in the room and all the other constituencies but the one we're interested in is is the black voices um were you did did anyone resist did city administration mayors i mean what should we expect if of it, course police resisted <laughs> police let me resisted, let me ask course, someone yeah. in the room who has their laptop please pull up the collaborative agreement from the city of cincinnati so we can read the first line we were the plaintiffs so when you sue legally there you go so it says united states district court of southern district of ohio western division in re cincinnati police in case number c-1-99-317 judge delot collaborative agreement, the Cincinnati Black United Front and the American Civil, Liber Civil Liberties Union of Ohio 
Foundation Incorporated on behalf of the class as defined herein, the plaintiffs. If you're a plaintiff in the case, you cannot be ignored. You must be mm -hmm. in the room to mm -hmm. negotiate the yeah, settlement. Yeah. You bring so the charges. You, the right. yeah. you file the lawsuit. So in a place like Memphis, where we don't have that, we have the Department of Justice, probably driven in large part by the Tyree Nichols murder, uh, coming here and launching this pattern of practice investigation on their own. Um, what do you say to the incoming mayor, for example, we've just elected a new mayor. He will take office in January in the middle of this investigation. What would you advise a new mayor in a four-year term who's facing this pattern of practice investigation? What would you say uh, about the voices that need to be in the room as we negotiate this? The other piece that I talked about, I'm going to answer that question, Josh, last night, was that how we created the eight different stakeholder groups so that no one felt left out. And if you already know what the politics of the city are, because there's politics in everything. If you have differences of opinion, get those opinions quickly as possible. Measure what people are saying, and I believe that you'll find that there's more common ground than not. When we created those eight stakeholder groups to include the police and their family, because no one had ever asked police and their families how they felt. When things happen across the country, no one goes back to their police and say, well, how do you feel about it? Do you think the police did it right? Well, we sure do. In Cincinnati, I ask all the time. However, so when doing that, when we ask everybody, we already had the opinions. We collected that data. We did the qualitative stuff so that we walked in the door saying, here's what the, uh, the nonprofit said, here's what the for-profit said, here's what the LGBTQIA community said, here's what the young people said, here's what the black people said who are alleging racial profiling. So when you collect that data, you're better, you're already setting up the process to work to be inclusive to everyone. So yes, it was legal. One, yes, we talked to everybody. And two, we were supposed to be in the room. Now, what can the city officials do right now? is they can enact laws that say we are going to ensure that representation of the voices of the mostly impacted are in the room and, and are leading this process in order to build um, the atmosphere of understanding. I, and I'm not going to use the T word because that's too big of a word for us. Trust is too big. It's too big. But in order to help people feel as though process are, processes are being put in place so that they can be included and that they're going to be heard should be the first order of the day, especially in this process. You should demand from the federal judge that the community, the critical C, is part of it. You should demand from the monitoring team that the community, that should be a remedy that comes out of the findings of what the DOJ is doing community has to be in the room. If they're not, I'd, I would say throw it all away. What has been, what have been some of the results? You, you, um, you've talked about um, use of force, for example. I know you probably have some statistics that you can tell us from the top of your head, but what are, things have, I presume, gotten better. I shouldn't probably presume, but let me ask you, did things get better over the last 20 years since, uh, since this collaborative agreement was reached? What has changed? Um, no, I don't, what I don't ever like to get into is answering for my entire community. So I do say I do cite the data. So I will tell you that a reduction of use of force is down by 50 percent. Um, interactions between black people and the police are down by 64 percent or upwards to 67 percent. Arrests are down by 54 percent as well. So in the year of 2001, CPD arrested 35,000 people. In 2020, it was 11,000. But 
we enacted a philosophical change on how policing is done in the city, and that is using problem solving. That is using data-driven strategies. That is using laser focus, not jump out boys, not rounding up people, not that type of policing, not the unconstitutional policing, but constitutional policing. We're still in the process of removing police from where they need to be, whether it's around mental health people or um, homeless people. Um, how they respond to 911 calls, all those things matter. So yeah, when you start to do those things, you'll see a difference. Now, you got some Cincinnati folks, you should ask them, do they think, in the room, do they think policing has changed in 20 years? Because I, I can see, I can see um, 20 years ago where we have, well, we were not engaged in hiring police chiefs and uh, lateral officers and new recruits and sitting in on policy change. Hell, we, heck, I'm sorry. <laughs> we just changed administrative codes on racial slurs for the entire city, not just for the police. We, we just did a full thorough um, walkthrough on no-knock warrant policies, although we changed the no-knock no, we changed the chokehold policies 20 years ago, but we have a different system in Cincinnati, but we went through that because we wanted to make sure that not just no not warrants were appropriately being um, deployed, but warrants themselves. Um, and so when you can have the opportunity of seeing that and then you see the results of that, then I would say things have changed, but you have three other folk in sure, here from Cincinnati. Sure, you sure. can ask them. Well, I wish we had enough microphones. Um, they can just collectively say yes or no. Do you think it's changed? <laughs> yes. That was a, that's you guys Iris's think it's husband. changed? That's my husband. Because I'm close enough to know. <laughs> because I have firsthand or firsthand experience, yes, it has changed through other cases that I know. Okay. And the way in which pe people, the police interacted with citizens of the city. Certainly it has changed. And I would, you know, Josh, and you can, as I, think further about where Memphis is, and this is such a great opportunity. You, you guys made me have to go back and think about the beginning of dealing with the monitoring team and all that. that, that came. I mean, it was a huge responsibility on our backs to select, because we had we went through two other monitoring teams. <laughs> so we all didn't agree, the city was mad, police was mad, FOP pushed back. Um, they pushed back severely. You know, police to me are like baseball players. They don't want nobody telling them what to do. Um, um, and, and they just don't like that other word, which is oversight. And to be black and be saying, we coming, was problematic for a lot. But I would say through the years, if you talk with them um, and those who see the beauty of what we're trying to do, because they've benefited from utilizing the provisions and the language of our document. They've gotten grants, they've gotten national recognition, they've gotten all this. And I'm saying, uh, wait a minute, <laughs> we pushed y'all there. You start? didn't just decide. Yeah, but if you ask, they probably would, you know, give you some different type of answers also. Yeah, one of the, one of the more fascinating parts of this story um, th this story that you play a major role in is, is what you do today with regard to the city you went from saying throwing the boulders we, we come in to throw and throw in the boulders to tell us about your role now uh, in 2023 in the city of cincinnati well because iris was born not to stop <laughs> um, um uh, the previous our previous city manager um under and she was under a mayor well we have a city manager form of government this is basically but, a mayor yeah well yeah she's basically but we do have a mayor also and so the mayor that we had at the time that she approached me of taking this role, he was the mayor in 2001. Mm. 
<laughs> when it all started. Yeah, so, you know, I wanted to choke him out a, a couple of hundred times. So there is no love loss. Um, but he respected the work. The city has respected the work. Um, and so under un, him being the mayor and the person that he picked to be the city manager, she came to me and she said, listen, you still are doing the work. Can you just come closer and consult us? Well, they wanted me to take a job. And I said, oh, no, that means I got to shut up. And I know in Which this, is often a strategy, right? Invite the person in. It's a black strategy. Can, it's right. almost an unwritten black law. Hmm. You know? And you didn't want that to happen. No, no. You've seen that too many times. Yeah, I've seen it too many times. And I, you know, you, and it's being tested right now. So we'll see where I end up. But I had to vet the community on if I could do this or not because I work for them. Um, and it's not a paying job. We've never gotten paid to do this work in over 20 years. And that's why it was so important that my husband say, okay, you could go do this. Um, because being on a job, you are, those, those things apply to you. You can't be all of that. But she approached me, and she made it very difficult for me to say no. Because I, I said, no, I don't want that job. I'm doing it anyway. She was like, yeah, but I need you to be closer. No, I don't want to do that. No, I don't want to do that. And she said, how about you consult? If you consult, will you be, will you, would you be willing to do it? I said, if you would be willing to sign my bill of rights, which is my contract, then I would be willing to. So you have to. a formal arrangement with the city of Cincinnati, and you're, you're um, responsible for their compliance with these agreements that they've made over the years. Yes, is that right? And I am responsible f um, to ensure that black voice is heard in all of the compliance issues to make sure that that is what we want and need. And then to yes, to actually, that it actually comes to fruition because government runs slow, whoa. You know, I talked about the first 10 years when our monitoring team said it was going to take 10 years, and I cried. I cried like a baby. I was hurt because black people needed something back. We needed something back. Once you strip of us, of, once you strip of us of all of our dignity and self-worth and value, we need something back, you know? And we needed to believe that this was going to stand the test of time which is why you know I refuse to leave until other folk step up to the plate because it can easily go backwards. It's almost like doing wrong is the order of the day. <laughs> it's the status quo. It should not be this difficult to tell people how to perform on their, their jobs. See, you couldn't work for me at this level, you know, the 50% completion rate, or that you're constantly creating the opportunities for people to sue. We're not an ins uh, insured city, so we lose on the front end, we lose in the middle, and we lose on the back end if police are behaving badly. We've also reduced the number of lawsuits you know, against police also. And our Citizens Complaint Authority, which I do worry about Memphis, because I worry about the state of Tennessee gutting your ability to have those, well, is critical, yeah. yeah. It's critical to monitoring, evaluating, recommending, on policy change, all that good stuff that needs that should be housed somewhere with professionals um, to look at the data to tell you if you're doing good, if you're not doing good, what you should throw away, what you should exacerbate. I, I worry about I worry about that for you all. You and me both. <laughs> I mean, the city can get creative. We've gotten they creative. can be very creative. We've gotten creative in the past on issues like this, and we've got examples of other cities that have been creative. So I'm. I'm That's why voting is so important. <laughs> you said it. Um, yeah, you, you raise such a great point about 
22 years. It's 2023. This, I mean, and we talk about it as if one day you woke up and, and there was a lawsuit and the next day you're working as a consultant for the city. No, there were, there were tears and setbacks and how many monitors? Monitoring, monitoring teams. teams. Yeah. We went through two other monitoring <laughs> yeah. teams. Yeah. We ran two other teams out and finally settled on Saul Green and his team, and they by far were exceptionally good. And they had to come in. I mean, police weren't welcoming to them either. They put them out of the office, uh, their offices. The police chief wouldn't talk to them. And there was one lady on the team. They treated her badly. We had to go to bat. You know, you had to cuss at them about the monitoring team so we can get to um, where we needed to get to to compliance. But, yeah, um, uh, that time was interesting in itself to watch. It's almost like an insurgent. Um, watch them push back on the on the federal government. You know, when I think about it. Sure. So we've talked a lot about like under the guise of the union too. So let's be oh, clear. Right. Yeah. Which is another slight difference that might actually help us in Tennessee is that we don't have strong unions. Um, well, we'll we'll see how that goes. They're, they're certainly vocal. We've talked a lot about the details of of this agreement. We've talked about. Um, your role in, in reaching it and some of the changes that we've, you've seen in policing in Cincinnati. Let's back up one step. You're, you're a black woman. You're, you, you and I your think husband so. own a <laughs> This is an audio medium. We, we can confirm that Iris Rowley <laughs> is a black woman sitting next to her husband. You guys are business owners. I do have three children. You have three children, and maybe you, I heard grandchildren last night. Six of them. Six grandchildren. Mm-hmm. So you are um, a resident of Cincinnati. Um, what does safety look like? What when you started this? What were you seeking to represent from from your people, from the people in the streets that you were giving voice to? What what, what does it mean? I mean, forget all the the metrics that the police want to give us and that the city wants to give us, frankly. But what is safety? What should people in a city like Memphis expect? Wow, that's that's amazing that you asked that because we've we've um, pushed for so many different. Um, avenues to address. Inside of our collaborative agreement, it talks about police accountability and public safety. Because we knew, um, well, first, we didn't want to sue the police. We wanted to sue on capitalism so we could fix our communities, right? Because we knew what it took. We were asking for $50 million then. Um, we knew that we could take the opportunity to address the factors of becoming criminal. Right? What does that look like? And really looking at other systems saying, you're not doing your part. If, if the system doesn't work for people, people are going to make a system work. Mm. Yeah, They really are. And, and it's not just black people <laughs> that, that do it. Um, but when you see the intentional uh, inequities that are constantly being massaged and uh, developed, and you see where education isn't working. We just voted in the city of Cincinnati on a zoo levy, but we voted down the affordable housing levy. So animals can live, but we know that we have a problem with affordability in the city of Cincinnati. We have a a serious problem, and it's a nationwide problem. We know that we have a serious problem on quality education. We know that we have a serious problem with access to health care. I didn't even get to mental health care. So we know that we have all of these areas that have ginormous opportunities to begin to really drill down. If, we, if, if the city really wanted to do black people, it's black residents justice, they would have taken our boycott demands, which were over those five areas, housing, education, 
political will and justice, um, economics, and health. And if we would have worked on all five of those areas simultaneously, because it doesn't take the whole daggone city to work on policing. Mm -hmm. That's the other misnomer. If we work on those things that we know are out there, that are attributable to people making bad decisions, that will help children. Now, Ohio is constitutional carry, stand your ground, guns are flowing quicker than food and love and housing and quality education. So if we focused, if we would have focused on those five areas, I would really be saying, yeah, we did something. We didn't do a lot of something. We did a thing because the community pushed to have that thing done. So when you, we have to look at all those other things as it relates to safety. You can't knee jerk. But that's the beauty of the collaborative, you guys. It gives us the foundation to problem solve. If we don't slow down how we react to what people perceive the problem is, you never truly can figure it out. So Sarah gives us the opportunity to say, hey, who needs to be in the room? Because if you can't see across the street because explain, the trees are there. Sarah. So Sarah is an acronym. Sarah is an acronym. S-A-R-A. Somebody Google it because I'm not going to tell y'all. Y'all too smart. I'm just going to talk you through it. So Sarah gives you, Sarah is a process to say, if you got trees blocking your view and you want to see over the tree, what do you do? What do you do to see over the tree? Do you just cut it down? Do you cut it somewhat down? Do you cut a hole in it? What, what are your druthers? What would make it safer for you? Now, what you would do with Sarah is you would bring all the people to the table that these trees are impacting to say, how is this impacting you? Because it might not be problematic for Iris. Mm -hmm. It might not, might not bother Jesse. Could bother you. You may want to say, hey, I just want half of it so I can see this far. The other, the other halfway may be fine. But first you want, did anybody pull up, Sarah? I What's did, it stand for? What's so it stand for? Scanning, analysis, response, and assessment. And assessment. It's used in problem-oriented policing. Community problem-oriented policing. And it's not just for policing. And yes, oh, by the way, when the city signed it, it signed it and said all city departments would use Sarah, not just the police. Because we have problems with building code and all those other things. But when you utilize this process, it slows you down. It doesn't give you the opportunity to knee-jerk because knee-jerk says what first? We need more policing. More police, That's the answer exactly. to everything. And especially to black and poor people. That's the only thing we ever get mm -hmm. is more policing. That's the only thing we ever get. We don't get investments. Most of our neighborhoods have been not invested in in 30, 40 years. We're about out of time. We couldn't be. I know, I know. But I want to ask you why you would get in a car. I don't know how far it is from Cincinnati. I know it's a long way. Why would you get in a car with your family and drive all the way to Memphis to talk to us about these things? As my ancestors told me a long time ago, to get up and do something and share the wealth of what you've learned with those who may need to know it. This is bigger than you all. Um, I'm bigger than myself. And plus, my husband said, come on, I got you. And my beautiful friends and advisors said they would drive us and and mess with me about my chicken and apples on the drive down. <laughs> Which you made for the journey, right? You I, man, let me tell yeah, you, I'm fried chicken wings, man. I was, <laughs> I was doing it. I was doing it. I, that's all I could muster because when you're on the front line, um, the way that we are, it doesn't leave a lot of time. And see, people don't ask you about your sacrifice. You know, people just think that, you know, you're born to do. You just should do. And, and, and in that is almost some type of enslaved type of thought. 
um, that people will impose. Well, Iris, you can do it all. No, you need to do what you need to do. So what we all need to figure out and why, why I'm here is that police are paid to do a job. What that job is and how that job goes is how you determine it. You are the bosses. And everybody else that's around needs to be held accountable when things are going. And that's just the order of, it, of the day. And that's why I'm here to, like I said last night, pass on the cape, give y'all a little wisdom, and come back with more folk that continue to tell you how to get it done. And tell us that we're the boss. You're the boss. I like it. Thank you so much, Iris Rowley, for joining us. We really, really appreciate your wisdom Thank you for having me. Thank you. That was my conversation with Cincinnati's own Iris Rowley. My thanks to Iris and her husband, Jesse, for making the drive from Ohio. Special thanks to Ryan Azada for his recording, editing, and publication support, and to the Community Foundation of Greater Memphis for helping bring Iris to town. That was Jeff Hewlett playing our theme song, She Got Gone. Support Jeff at live music venues around town and listen to his music anywhere. Search Jeff Hewlett Music on Google. I'm Josh Spickler, and this is The Permanent Record, a production of Just City. Learn more about our work and find previous episodes of this podcast at justcity.org. Follow us on social media at justcity901. We invite you to subscribe to The Permanent Record wherever you get your podcasts. Give us a rating. Leave us a review. It helps build our audience. In a Just City, we listen and we speak up. Our thanks to you for doing both.